Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer, and broadcaster. And what you're about to hear is one of the roughly 1,400 interviews I did for publications such as the Irish Times, Sunday Independent, Hot Press Magazine, and for RT Radio 1. How do I know there are roughly 1,400 interviews? Because I recently digitized all the damn tapes myself. But remember that many of the interviews were done for the print media and recorded on cassette tapes. So some are, let's say, sonically challenged. However, I happen to believe that sonic considerations should at times give way to historical significance. And I'm glad to say that at least some powers that be in RTE Radio 1 agreed with me on this and broadcast between 2015 and 2018 many of my interviews in a series called The Joe Jackson Tapes Revisited. What follows is a program from that series. By the way, if you want to access the full tapes for personal or professional use, for example, in a documentary, you can contact me via my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com. Enjoy the podcast. Michael D. Higgins is a caricature of Ireland's vision of itself, the caring nation. Said who? Certainly not me. I had to fight to keep from laughing as I repeated that quote. Now, those words were spoken by journalist Eamon Dunphy not long before the 1993 interview I recorded with Michael D. and revisit for this show. Either way, Eamon's comment must really have struck him as dumb and out of tune with the zeitgeist when Higgins was later elected President of Ireland on the highest majority in the history of the state. Clearly, to that majority of the Irish people, Michael D. Higgins is not a caricature of Ireland's vision of itself. He is its embodiment. That said, let me hastily add in the name of balance and transparency, no, I was not on Michael D.'s election campaign team. And even though we both wrote for the same magazine during the late 80s and early 90s, we spoke on only one occasion prior to this interview. At a Christmas gathering, not long after the start of my career, he ambled over to me, smiled impishly and said, so you were the young man who is taking my place writing about popular culture from a socio-political perspective. I said, are you kidding Intellectually, I'm only in the Hickney place compared to you, Michael. Sure, aren't we all? But Higgins had identified my MO as an arts correspondent. He knew I'd been Ireland's first writer in residence at an educational institute at Tech. And we then proceeded to chat away at that rock and roll party, as one would, about heavyweight tomes such as Ernst Fisher's The Necessity of Art and Raymond Williams' The Long Revolution. And so... Five years later, when we did this interview, I picked up where we'd left off and asked him to tell me and readers how important a book such as Fisher's had been to him. The question now seemed even more pertinent, given that Higgins had recently been appointed Ireland's First Minister for the Arts, Culture and the Geltacht. Unfortunately, Michael Day, a long-time member of the Labour Party, who also had studied economics, been an accountant and taught sociology, then delivered a 20-minute-long, positively professorial dissertation that was virtually a monologue, and although fascinating, it would hardly make for riveting radio if broadcast in full. Even so, a lot of what he said was central to any understanding of the man's core belief that art should be a part of the democratic process, and that culture is comprised of the customs, products, and rituals that make up the way of life of every section of the community, and not just of an elite. Michael Day also was fulsome in his praise for an old college friend, Anne Slattery, who in 1971 gave him Fisher's The Necessity of Art. He praised Sandy Fitzgerald, who during that decade asked him to chair some meetings of CAFE, Creative Arts for Everyone. And he also praised Kieran Benson's 1979 paper, 
on creativity. And it was fundamental to me because it's whether it was to be defined on a totally individual basis or that it was to be defined socially. And Benson had thrown his lot in with, we were symbol using people, sharing symbols, so therefore creativity was social. Now, linking right. that to Fisher, if creativity then is a social, a social, it quickly becomes a right, and that sets up all sorts of implications for whether it should be central in the educational system, purchased privately, separate from the school day and so on. But would that, that kind of social uh, responsibilities of art, would that not have been part of uh, sociology for you? Oh yes, I had lectured on, on, on the sociology of literature. I never wanted literature to carry any burdens. I, I respected too much for that. And I, was, right. and I used to get right. into difficulties with some of my materialist friends. Uh, and it was, uh, I read, for example, Raymond Williams. Very right. Raymond Williams is right. one of the great influences on me. I was very conscious, I think, that he said in Craig's book on Marxists and literature in Britain, uh, Williams had been excluded because Williams wasn't materialist enough. In other words, Williams had acknowledged the dimension of the cultural. I remember holding my ground on it because I never regarded, for example, that the feminist agenda could simply be disposed of by saying is that when you have a socialist society, patriarchy will disappear. I couldn't see the evidence for that. And equally, I didn't think that you could reduce the ecological agenda to the materialist argument. And if you take the full... Uh, contribution of the Frankfurt School, what it did was is that it introduced the concept of domination. And therefore, that forms of social forces that were regressive, repressive, couldn't be confined to exploitation at the point of production. So you had to think about domination, which was within the sphere of culture, about time, about gender, about space, and so on. And then if you took that, and actually people, I was alerted to that, and I I didn't mind. Well, that's the connective between Fisher, Williams, Marcuse, all that. They are all from a kind of Marxist base in reading how art is used culturally and politically and uh, in terms of hegemonic structures, how it's all, uh, the interreaction between all. Oh, yes, they do, but the difficulty, they, they all acknowledge. Uh, th- th- what I would say is, is, is that uh, they were all uh, holistically contextual. They didn't lift art, cultural things right, out there. Art. They yeah. put them into the context of social forces. Right. Where they differed was, as I said, the social forces are not simply the materialist ones, but the materialist ones mediated through other forces that are equally important in an adequate social analysis. Now you know. And after that fanciful flight, it brought Michael D. back down to earth by focusing on his childhood in Limerick and in Clare. I asked how much of what he did as a minister was fired by the fact that he was, he'd said elsewhere, culturally deprived as a child. How deeply, I wondered, did that affect his desire to make sure that Irish people in the future are not similarly disadvantaged? I know that all that earlier part of my life was the function of education and high performance at a very high level was structured towards escape from okay. uh, economic conditions. And that absorbed things, even through university. When you see uh, some of the reworkings of my past now from some people I've written, read, writing about my work, 
Uh, you'd imagine that I had, in fact, uh, acquired my literary taste and branch meetings of the Labour Party. I studied English literature and language in Northern right. Middle English. And I've had a love of, English, of language since I was about 12. Right. But you, to give you a direct answer to your question, no child should have had the exclusion from cultural opportunity and participation as I had. But you were excluded because of the question of class and poverty. It was a question of poverty, but I had advantages. I mean, right. it was mixed. My mother loved reading. There were Literature? Always, yes, and there were always books. Some of the books nowadays people would regard as trivial. My mother read all sorts of things. She read Ken and Sheehan and, right. and uh, as I think, things <laughs> on him have been revised, but not the gown, all of those things. And there's easy blase about these. And I think she probably read all of Annie M.P. Smithson, who published about 20 books. You know, right. she was a distant right. nurse and she right. wrote... Uh, uh, I read about most of them myself. But there is a phase you go through, and at least I went through, in which I kind of almost read insatiably. Everything. Sure, uh, sure. I read Nat Gould, for example, because I was I loved horses. Right. And I read all those paperbacks about uh, uh, dishonesty at race courses. And, right, right, uh, uh, right. Horses and jockeys and stables right. and everything. And I did indeed, and I... Quite delighted, I did. I enjoyed it. But you don't believe there should be. Yeah, but you don't believe. See, this is a core question because you don't believe there should be a hierarchical value system placed on what one chooses to read and how one chooses to reflect oneself through that choice. You know, know, if people choose paperbacks or whatever they choose, and they're actively involving themselves in the process of reading. Uh, you see that as healthy. Of course I do, because they're making their own way through their literary curiosity. They'll arrive at different points. But certainly one of the things I think, uh, like, for example, one of the plays that I read, which which was very interesting to me, was uh, Edward II. And I remember being fascinated by Marlowe. I thought Edward right. II was a better play than Shakespeare's Richard II, which is you couldn't make that comparison when you read Shakespeare. But then again, coming to Shakespeare at the second or third time after secondary school, the point is, is that I could see the wonderful economy and achievement in lines and passages. And that's a different way of encountering sure, sure. it, rather than saying, uh, we have to find what is great and the grace will be rammed down the public's throat. And if there are casualties, so be it. I don't accept that. I think that it's wrong. I think that there are there is such a thing as 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 grace uh, literature. There is great music. Right, there, right, there, right. But it's it's changing too. The definition of of course. Well, this is. leads me directly to the, uh, the the your first book of poetry became the one of the most the best-selling poetry book of the year in 1990, which would suggest that the people have chosen you as in Dirk and to represent something of what they want to say. But I also saw Eilish Shohanlands, is that her name, attack on you and on this whole concept of community arts, saying that don't let everybody tell the story because not everybody has a story to tell. It is an outrageous. You, so, you know that argument and her citing more with Anthony Burgess's the sanctity and purity of art above all else, don't let the peasants in. Isn't yeah. that the basic concept? Yes, it is, but may I finish it, because as far as you mentioned, uh, uh, this person that I never met, and never rang me, or never asked me for an interview, and I don't know whether or not she has read any of my work, right. uh, is, is that uh, she opened that particular comment with, with uh, an outrageous allegation, which was contradicted uh, last Sunday, and it was, she suggested that... Uh, Artie had asked me to go on the pure drop because I 
was the minister for broadcasting who removed the cap. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, and um, then, of course, the reality was I had been on the pure drop on several previous occasions before I was anywhere near sure, or far, far sure, from likely sure, to be a minister. Sure, sure. The program had been, uh, I'd been invited to be on the program long before even the All government right. was formed. All and right. in fact, I made the program before I had responsibility for broadcasting. We're leaving that aside, All but right. it gives you the kind of that. You put that down yeah. to a mixture of, of vindictiveness and inaccuracy and sloppy journalism and right. uh, it is appalling and uh, but I, I wonder have, where it came from but I have a wider question later on the uh, newspaper's response to the lifting of the yeah, caps we can, so maybe we can hook it in there yeah let's not get stuck on no, this but the, but let's, but let's keep to the question which we were talking about which is, which is the most situated don't let the peasants into the arts yeah, she, yeah. first of all her attack on community arts well yeah. that's just uh, based on a, first of all the two are really together Burgess's comment yeah. because Burgess's comment is taken out of context again, right. which didn't okay. surprise me I right. know where that is in Burgess's writing and what he is talking about is the fire of inspiration. Oh, and there's right. a big difference, right. you see, right. between such things as would interfere with the fire of inspiration in the realm of the private and the personal. But there's a big difference, which of course I wouldn't expect her to understand, between the private and the personal and crass individualism. And right. Burgess, of course, understands and knows that. Right. So right. it's an unfair use right. of Burgess's okay. quotation for okay. a start, and she would be shocked to find that I had read Burgess. Right. But the point is, is that uh, maybe she wouldn't. But the point is, is that in the other issue of the community arts, this is nonsense because what it is missing is the distinction the fundamental uh, distinction, the fundamental debate about creativity. Yes, I uh, let her hold whatever views she likes, but I agree with uh, with uh, with Benson, with okay. Kieran. And what I mean by creativity is this: is that creativity, you see, could infuse the whole school day. Creativity is, is this this impulse beyond, if you like, schooling. It's one is the difference between schooling and education. Right, right. It's the ability to con to to use imagination and intellect together. Now, right. if she wants to suggest that some social classes have no imagination because they have been despised, uh, that's uh, close to a fascist opinion. Right. In relation to the other one about the attack on community arts, here is what is missing: is that you see. Any artist that I know, if you talk to John O'Connor uh, about playing Chopin, is that he will tell you, I suspect, that if the more people who are orally aware of piano and the more people who are able to come from a higher base through the entire population, the better the audience is, the better composition is. Right. So in other words, his genius, and which is real, and his great gift is in fact assisted onto a higher plateau again because the audience to which he plays can get all the more formal. And to right, suggest right. that you have to choose between individual creativity and genius, this personal personal creativity and genius and community arts means that she has read nothing for the last 25 years at best. That's the cherished opinion. <laughs> <laughs> but doesn't it represent the uh, arts for art's sake argument? I also had Leonard Cohen well, say to me... Well, it represents it very badly. Yeah, well, all right. But, because uh, the reason I know that her. But she's not talking so much about... Uh, maybe, maybe, more vulgar, yeah. Right, but maybe she's not talking... She's talking less about the impulse than the form being polluted. Like, I had Leonard Cohen say to me, who's a reputable poet, that he felt, you know, his words were, that the temple was violated, the temple of poetry was violated in the 70s because too many people came in. Is yeah. that... You know what I mean? I Is there not some argument there that the art, the art itself gets debased? Or we have to set new structures for, as you say, evaluating... 
Well, I think that there is a real problem if you say that everything is poetry. Yeah. I, I, I don't accept that argument. All right. uh, I do think the other side of it is, is this, is that, uh, and it's one, uh, you know, I uh, one review of my last book, we can go into that again, but uh, it touched a bit on this, and well, there is such a thing as craft. To suggest that people who decide to have their work in a particular form are ignorant of metrical device or right, rhyme right. or rhythm or whatever these things is nonsense because you can decide, for example, I could take one of the... I happen to be quite conservative myself in relation to poetry. We can talk about that later. Right. Later in the interview, I did yield to what seemed to be Michael D's craving to address critics of his poetry, such as those who suggested it was lacking vis-a-vis form in terms of metre, rhyme and so on. I spent years studying form. Right. I'm not talking about racing either. I wasn't as good at that. But uh, on uh, yes, I I I I I don't mind answering that. First point I'd make is if you take my first collection, the poems in it are very different. Right. There are some very short poems in which I've used a very different kind of a form. Uh, it is the process of composition which defined most of the poems with which I'm happy in that book. And the very right. personal poems in the second half of the current collection, uh, in the search and uh, in the journey, in the search and the journey. And you do notice that the journey, for example, the structure of the lines there is very different from the ones earlier in the book. When I am, in fact, telling a tale, right. as I am in, uh, in the death of Mary Doyle, yeah. I am trying to be faithful. Uh, to the mythic uh, 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 quality of an old woman's life. Right. And it, it suggested nice, long, rounded shapes to me. Uh, the other one, then, when I come on, uh, because uh, deeper pain is sharper, sure. uh, suggested it. And then I, 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 I am struggling uh, for hope in uh, towards the journey and in my recovery of the social where my poem for example beyond the eye there is a golden space or lines like uh, to see you a seed in every child's eye uh, your own in every hand your own skin gone dry you see what right, I'm doing right, there right, it's right. very different sure so it's content detailing the poem well, what I found quite ridiculous is that uh, it isn't clear, for example, from Fred Johnson's review of my book in the, in the, in the Irish Times as to whether he read the poems at all, because he begins uh, 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 with the blurb at the back of the book, and then he, he uh, goes on. Which part of the blurb? He looks at Brendan Kennedy's all introduction right. of my book, right. and then the, the next thing is, this is the suggestion uh, that the feelings are all right, but not worked poetically. Well, that's good, very good opinion. Oh, Fred, I think. Fred, okay. But then the next part of it is, 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 is that um, there's no attempt to engage the poems at all in their in their own. I'm not complaining. There's no attempt to engage, to engage the, poems. the poems as poems, and then look at, for example, the structure of the poems or anything like that. Right. And these are the people who would accuse me of, right. of uh, being formless, of, of being formless, right. and uh, right. they just didn't do their work. I didn't write the poems for the personal satisfaction of, of reading reviews. That, that uh, what has been the overall critical response? It's been very good. Has it? Yes, when I read the first book down in Nina and I met a, uh, I read a reading down there, one woman who, who identified with, 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 with what okay. I wrote about a cow, she said, I had a grand week during your reading, she said, but I had a few laughs too, she said. You know, there is an undercurrent going right. on, you know, that, you know, there's an old row brewing away there that isn't, uh, but there are others who are against performance poetry anyway. All right. 
the performance of poetry, Absolutely. the impurification of yes, poetry indeed. by presenting it in that way. But to you, is the response of that woman as legitimate as the response of Fred Johnson or whoever? I will tell you that woman, and I'll give you one other A nun wrote to me. Right. And she said to me she had intended use, she was using part of my poem, The Betrayal, for a retreat of nuns right. down a waterfall. And well, a nun came to her and said to her, uh, could I have the poem? And she read the poem. And she said she'd stayed up all night reading it. And it transpired that she hadn't grieved for the death of her oh, own right. father. Right. And she said, the one nun running said, do you mind if I tell my ideas? And she said, I don't care if you tell the whole world. Well, I, sure. to me, that writing, the, that justifies my writing. Absolutely. And, um, what about the uh, political response? Are there those within politics who would feel that a politician should not betray his inner life, as you would say, do in the later poems, that you, that you lay too much emotionally, intellectually on the line? Yes, I That do. you're supposed to be a conduit through which people pass and... You know that it's too self-revelatory. Have you had anybody say that, or is that wrong? Or am I... Oh, well, anyway, they wouldn't talk to you about it if they did. You know, they'd talk to someone else about it, probably. Uh, right, in the first right. book, uh, I did think that there was a kind of an enormous curiosity. An enormous right. number of iconics got the book after a while, and then it had been validated by the public. What I did say is I have said someone else, fine, one, there were the odd one who thought it, this is a kind of a deviance. I heard someone, as I said, when I was in a toilet in the inner part, and you know, that was embarrassing moments when you don't know whether you should open the door or not, and they're finished talking. <laughs> About you, saying is, I, here he's taking her poetry now as if it was a kind of the last straw. <laughs> that was a very harsh. He was morally dubious before this, but, now. but this is a, that was a kind of an exceptional, uh, exceptional experience, I have to say. Right, Basically, right. very good. Now, on the second book, it is fascinating. There has been a, a, a great interest, but the, the curious side of it is uh, less so in Ireland than All in right. Europe. Uh, right. Uh, the word and the you know when I went to my first meeting uh, of uh, the European Council of Culture Ministers, uh, the embassies had all briefed the, the their people about um, my full biography. Right. And in fact, it was a great advantage. All oh, right. Right. That, that in Ireland you had this person who was a writer who was trying to write and at the same time trying to make politics. All oh, right. Right. So it's been a positive. Well, shall we take a cup of tea? Yeah. <coughs> Shall we have tea indeed? How civilised? Of course, in some circles, often among squares, tea means marijuana. And given that I had recently interviewed Joan Baez for the Irish Times, I asked Michael Dee if he agreed with her contention that drugs had made people inactive during the late 60s. Baez told me that in this sense she differed from Dylan, whose view was, she said, there's nothing we can do. Let's go home and get stoned. She didn't use the word man. But she argued, there is, and I'm going out to try effect change. You see that uh, I was in the United States in uh, 1967 right. in Indiana, and I remember reading a thesis by somebody called Lucy in the Sky with the Diamonds, and it was an analysis of Timmy, Timothy O'Leary right. and uh, his movement. And uh, if you think of it, here was the real danger of the whole thing. It was the phrase would be used as all in your head, man. Well, the point was, if you said that, you said, you had departed from all the social connections, solidarities and everything like that. Then if you were to describe big business, as some of the Marcosian followers did, as the machine 
that I'm against the oh, machine, I, man. Yeah. <laughs> now, the main thing about being against all of that, you see, was, was that uh, you found that at a curious stage in the politics of California, all these people, not only avoiding structures in the analysis, but opposing all structures. All right. And they then opposed the state and state provision. And the people who abused their confusion was the new right. So when right. Reagan wanted his governor of California to close down parks, public spaces, and so on, he said he was attacking bureaucracy in our lives. And they were attacking bureaucracy in our lives too. Right. But they right. were conned. And it's the same old story uh, uh, that this, this, this business of what begins as a personal inner trip uh, inevitably will let you down. Sure. You see, we, we don't live, uh, what's in our heads is important, but we don't live uh, as isolated beings like that. Without social responsibility. Yes, without that, that. Oh, sure, yeah. And there was the other argument she made, uh, the argument against protest songs was that it turned a lot of potential political activity into platitudinous pap. You know, a lot of people discharged and felt they were actually advancing things through singing the Bob Dylan songs, but they weren't doing anything. Oh, you, this is a big problem. And when I was making the documentaries in Rio last year, uh, I, I got into a bit of trouble with some people over that, but it was, uh, uh, there was out in Rio Centro, you had a, uh, uh, an elaborate ritual set up, you know, helicopters flying. It was a nightmare for uh, all those uh, polkertudinous people who were presenting television <laughs> programs and making films and sending home reports. I see the frowns coming through the makeup as the next batch of helicopters arrived, and you had what you might call walk-ins, you know, uh, and, um, the Canadian Prime Minister Brown Mulroney arriving in on famille and keeping moving. I actually discovered that if you carried no papers and no briefcase, that you couldn't find be pursued immediately because there were so many countries coming that wouldn't know who you are and they thought you were a dignitary. That you were all right. So all you did was two or three people behind you and carry nothing, and you'd have to be interviewed. But they, you had all this going on. Right. You had a really serious agenda that had been watered down in preparatory conferences. You had issues like militarism excluded. You had issues like um, the production dissemination of weapons. Right. Serious issues of aid, trade, debt. Now, in the global village, global forum, where you had all the NGOs, a curious thing had happened. You had in one the women's tent some of the most finest debates I've I know uh, were going on. But around it, as a big village, remember you had 5,000 people there, NGOs and others. You had all sorts of people with, with the, from, uh, were, uh, some of them were sharing and relating and massaging their way towards the new century. Now, there's something to be said for some of these gentle pursuits. But equally, here was the problem. Apart from the women's tent and the tent where the alternative treaties were going on, some of the NGOs had fallen for the Starf Syndrome. So when they ended up with his mates, a really piece of incredibly hope, piece of nonsense from Ted Turner on right. CNN. Yeah. He happened to be accompanied by Jane Fonda. And in the course right. of it, he announces that he had gone back to the traditional values. And yeah, yeah. Jane was kind of not yeah. going back to see the values of, of uh, being sure. uh, a, a traditional uh, a partner and so on, which was, but of course the media they wanted and to get photographs of Jane Fonda and get shots of Jane Fonda and so forth. So they had in fact fallen into the star syndrome. Of course I knew that Michael D hadn't answered my bloody question there, but the answer he gave was so much fun and so true. So I went to that subject again from a different angle. I asked if he agreed that the rock music industry in general, as part of the entertainment industry, 
had been used since its inception circa 1956 as a palliative, as a means of selling endless dreams of romance and materialism, often in the name of the status quo and of the state. I think the evidence is, is, is there to support such an assertion. Obviously, there are exceptions. But quite frankly, yes, there is a, this sense. That, 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 that. And what it does is that, which is another issue, uh, is that now that we're in times of high unemployment all over Europe, uh, again, the idea that you must individualize that experience and keep it private and you listen to your rock rap to distract you from it. I think there's a lot to be said for that. Yes, it has, and it has to take responsibility for that. I mean, if you ask yourself, what has it made passive and what has it released? Yes, it has released some very vital energies, but it has equally been an anodyne for, uh, for, uh, for, uh, for many, many people, many, many people. Right. And um, uh, it, it, that's a great pity. All in the name of economics. And also the essential image would be the person with the Walkman enclosed to him or herself sitting on a train beside 20 other people who are enclosed in their own space inside Walkman. Yes, it's this kind of uh, immiserated private version of the world, yes. And that is a great pity, yes. During this next exchange, Michael Day, much to my amazement and amusement, moved into a Brian Lenehan on mature reflection, or should that be immature reflection mode, when I asked if he'd ever used drugs. Hmm? Did you ever take drugs? No, I have... Uh, In the oh, 60s, part of that? Oh, the 60s. Yeah. Oh, yeah, they... they uh I'm trying to remember back now to the 60s. You see, in the 60s, I wasn't in the United States in 1967, 68. And uh, uh, certainly I, I, I was in environments where uh, people smoked pot, yes. Did you take it? Pardon? Did you take it with them? Sorry? Did you take pot with them? I'm trying to remember. I wasn't very successful at, 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 at that particular time. I didn't smoke, for example. Right. Yeah. I can't, honestly, I... I you can't remember if you took drugs or you're just unwilling to say well, no, you don't no, want no, to because No, no, of... no, no, what? I'll be very explicit about it. I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to remember the detail of it. Um, um, I do remember uh, uh, smoking marijuana, I think, yeah. But that's all. I never took any other drugs of any form. It... I wasn't all very right. interested in Why it. Why not? Yes, I drank alcohol, of course. Right, right. Hmm. But as an intellectual, as a, as a way of expanding your head, man, did it, no, it didn't work that way. I mean, that was the other I completely, fallacy at the time. I completely and totally reject that. Do you? I do, because I saw so many appalling casualties right. uh, in the... Uh, in the uh, and I certainly think as well, because I was remember studying uh, uh, between... Uh, with, Alfred Linda Smith, who wrote the first two books on the uh, on the, 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 the drugs, the, the opiate addict, and the other, he was right. working in Indiana. And certainly the thing about it, there was a big distinction between that time, if you like, between people who were using grass, as they said. And, and remember that the point is, is that many of us uh, were on very uh, tenuous visas to study in the United right. States at the particular time. And that's right. why I'm not evading your question all right. at all. Is that my best answer to you is, is that yes, I'd say yes, but uh, uh, it's a very long, 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 long time ago. But certainly I was aware as well of the difference between that and the manipulation, which was 
so appalling even then, which was in the, I was back in the States in 1971, and the changes, no, 1973, and the changes that are taking place in even six years between people who were manipulating the connection between that scene, that time, and now later drugs was appalling. I mean, commercial people. I also visited Denmark, and I remember again, oh. Christina, again, all the sharks that moved in, and really people were interested less in something that was around Allen Ginsberg, where I remember he visited Indiana, and there was a, a fog around the place uh, for, for the poetry, you know, <laughs> around the time of Howe and others. The right. difference oh, yeah. between that scene uh, and the later one was only appalling because uh, now it had become uh, the, the manipulated uh, dependency scene that it did and that it wreaked havoc on so many people's lives. Right. Well, I would never, I would have been terrified uh, to use, I remember there were people who used LSD, I would have been terrified. I guess I shouldn't say this, but Michael D and I then had a joint of ham to beef up our sandwiches. I'm kidding. But here's the deal about the interview. It lasted four and a half hours and was conducted over a two-day period. And before we began the second part, Higgins said he wanted at some point to address specifically an accusation Jerry Adams had levelled at him during a recent interview with me. Michael Day also wanted to further address attacks from the Sunday Independent, which he believed stemmed from the fact that he'd lifted the cap on advertising in RTE, which ill-affected newspaper advertising revenues, some claimed. And by the way, Michael D. Higgins incurred the wrath of not only the Sunday Independent, but many newspapers, after he said during the following exchange that he was keeping a file of articles which he intended to use in a specific sense and specific setting. You remember that Sunday where he went for you? Yes, yes I do. He criticised uh, my voice. He criticized... said you were a faintly ridiculous caricature of Ireland's vision of itself, the caring nation. Just pretty savage stuff. Yes, it was a piece of personal abuse and very offensive. Right. Again, right. only recently you had an article by Elisha Hanlon. And this that, that Elisha Hanlon one is one in which is is outrageous. I sure. mean, it's corrected by uh, the people who made the programme. Well, we also corrected in the course of the beginning of the interview. We did. With and, our uh, accusation about the pure drop. Yes. Now, the, the other thing about it is, is, is that... Um, there have been a, 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 a sustained assault on, on me over a, a very long period. Um, on another occasion, Patricia Redlick suggested that everyone wanted Saddam's finger to be stopped from pressing the nuclear button except me. Uh, which is, that was in it. And there was another uh, one in it, in, in, uh, uh, I think, on a Mother's Day. Uh, Owen Harris couldn't write without attacking my wife because she had expert comments on the Gulf War. I could go on. Sure, There's sure, a string sure. of these things that the stuff follows a pattern. I think there was one, uh, you, know, you would find individual decent journalists and independent sure. who would want, want to dissociate themselves from that. Yes, I do think it was related to the well, removal of the cap. Yes. Do you? Uh, I know uh, that there has been a decision taken uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, to target certain individuals and, right. and that I'm one of them, yes. There is also the other appalling thing which everyone is very polite about now. Uh, there is uh, the, the 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 famous uh, um, Richard Casey affair in, in right. which uh, they oh, right. advertised uh, a bogus interview through the radio waves, which right. has created immense problems. Uh, even uh, when I look at it as Minister of Broadcasting, the appropriateness of advertising uh, an alleged interview uh, it was appalling. Right. And right. Uh, the the uh, the backdown was mealy mouth and. Uh, 
the idea then of, of uh, a sackcloth and ashes wearing Eamon Dunphy on questions and answers was singularly unimpressive. <laughs> also, what is it? Uh, I, I don't know what paper it was, but I saw in the interview with the Sunday Times that somebody had suggested that your recent visit to Somalia, you, you capitalised on it by shedding tears for the camera and dressing in battle fatigues for effect. Who said that and where did that come from? That was in The Independent Was that well. The Independent too? And that was Dunphy, yes. So no, no, what, what was very interesting is, is that to, to disprove that factually was uh, I was in Baidoa, for example, where uh, I was witnessing the burial of uh, 120 people in a mass grave. There were 10 to 12 in each grave. And I, I travelled back by road and Mary Robinson's plane, President Mary Robinson's plane, landed in, uh, in Mogadishu and uh, Mogadishu South, to be specific. I was waiting there with a plastic bag with my clothes in it because the, the others were in northern Mogadishu and didn't have time to collect my bag and I was getting a lift back in a Canadian Air Force Hercules plane that had been carrying in grain. I didn't even go near the huge horde of journalists that were attending on the president. And actually, none of them noticed I was there, and I didn't want to see sure, interviews. Sure, sure. I spoke to the president on our plane briefly at the invitation of David Andrews, and David Andrews was looking at the grain shipment with me in the Hercules, and then I went away. I was, remember, there uh, without seeking any, uh, uh, any at all uh, coverage. Uh, there was a documentary being made on Trokra's uh, work in uh, Mandela and others. And I gave the odd bit for them about what I had seen. Right. And uh, in the course of that, uh, in near Gerisa, uh, a woman who had walked with 120 miles uh, 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 was in a camp and uh, one of her children was seriously ill and we made an attempt to run in a jeep uh, to bring it. And just uh, as the bishop, local bishop and myself were assisting the woman and her baby down, as I handled the baby, the baby down, baby's body began to stiffen. And at that minute, someone asked me, but two or three minutes afterwards, uh, I was coming here to the, at the end of a week and a half. I'd been quietly in my own way, sure. uh, not doing anything. But then... When this came on and, and uh, I, I described uh, the child's death, I was visibly moved. I, in fact, did not shed tears, but I was visibly shaken. Sure. By God, I don't apologise for that. The suggestion I certainly wasn't wearing fatigues. And that's a reference, I think, a cheap reference to my work in Nicaragua. Uh, right. this, this, uh, this, this, that writing uh, is one, I have to say, uh, that does make me angry because it was uh, uh, an insult uh, to the to the dead children of Somalia and to the orphans in Nicaragua and to those who suffered on the Contra war. Right. And, and I think mm -hmm. it was an appalling, uh, cheap, uh, a disgraceful, untruthful, a slanderous reference. And, I, and it is one of the reasons why if Jack Charlton says he can't talk to Eamon Dunphy, the classic Eamon Dunphy style of behaviour of wandering up to you a week or two after uh, producing rubbish like this in between making a television programme later, saying how oh, his boss is a lovely man and lets him write whatever he likes. Right. But frankly, that kind of writing is a reflection on Eamon Dunphy, the editor, and the owner of the paper. It is a, a disgraceful, it was a disgraceful piece of journalism. And, uh, and Frank, I, I will not go through the bogus uh, uh, affectation of imagining that uh, I regard him and Dunphy in the same way since he wrote that as I do now. You also said it deeply upset your son. Oh, indeed, indeed, because mm -hmm. my, uh, the point was is that uh, I was not communicable with in the middle of Somalia for nearly two weeks. Right. I had no opportunities right. of phoning home. Right. And right. this appeared on television. Uh, the children could see when I did make the contact 
uh, where their father was and what he was doing, and then to have it described like this uh, by, sure. by, a, by a paid scurrilous hack uh, 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 is just offensive to them as well. But most decent mm-hmm. people yeah, yeah, uh, w- yeah. would be uh, would be were appalled by it. But of course, it didn't. Uh, you won't find, for example, Eamon Dunphy apologising for that because I don't hire him. But he would sure. apologise for something. He would come on, of course, and be wheeled out to be the, the paid penitent uh, on a television programme uh, for his boss. And to say then, of course, the editor is such a broad-minded man. What does he refer to him as? The flower of his generation, and so on. I mean, if you that kind of thing is in throllop from people seeking preferment for parishes. Sure. Okay. I can understand how that would deeply affect yeah. and hurt anybody. You must remember, in case you, I don't allege anything against anybody, I'm only dealing with the facts as printed. Right. But the point was is that you must remember the sister paper of the Sunday Independent carried a thing which said, "Michael, do you've seen nothing yet?" Who said this? The Sunday World. Oh, did I? I missed that. Oh, yes, and that was the phrase. You've seen nothing yet. If you think this was so-and-so, you've seen nothing yet. And that raises a question about people, for example, who come then looking for assistance. Yes, their entire newspapers are entitled to be assured of place in the communicative order, but they're also uh, required to to, to operate standards. And what is worrying is, is that the most powerful are, in fact, the ones who are operating the lowest standards. Right, right. What can you do against to defend yourself and your family in that situation? Do you just have to wait for the next attack? You just do nothing. You go on and you... you they, they don't dislodge me at all from anything I'm trying to do. I have an agenda of work. Right. I'm working 18 hours of the 24 hours, as I said. And I'm, they're not going to dislodge me at all. But the one thing that I'm not going to do is to pretend uh, that, 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 uh, that I ignore it. I don't ignore it. Sure enough. I've cut out those articles and I have them there on file. And... I would like sometime as this much when I get my next communication from the NNI for Joe Hayes to go back through all those things right. that are written right. and tell me how they fit with what he told me about what I accept from him. He told me and I accepted and his delegation that they're very interested in assuring standards because sure. we discussed sure. uh, matters sure. such as, for example, uh, you know, in this country we don't have a press council. Right. I've always felt that it shouldn't be imposed, really, that it should, in fact, come from the industry itself. Right. But if we view the way that if it goes on and we don't have uh, self-discipline at a professional level, well, then I think we must seriously ask the question, equally if we are to make sure that newspapers have their place, right. uh, what mechanisms right. do the citizens have? Right, right, right. Well, the normal citizen wouldn't have much of a chance against that kind of personal attack or vendetta, would they? wouldn't have much kind of... They'd have a right of reply, but... That means nothing to you yeah. because yeah. Uh, in, yeah. in a famous case once in the... In, uh, uh, you must remember that many years ago uh, they offered me a right of reply. Right. In fact, they, they sent uh, uh, someone down to interview me who was very well known. Uh, they had suggested that I had attended an after-mass meeting, uh, uh, First Communion Mass, uh, and spoke of abortion. At, a, at, a, at, an, after, at an election right. meeting, right. yes. Right. This is the kind of, of, of uh, right. Right. stuff. What about the suggestion, I think it was John Boland who said, you'll have to kind of, you'll have to toughen up and take this kind of stuff and find out if you're a five furlong horse or a steeplechaser. Do you feel you have to... It's a fair point. Uh, you know what I mean? That n- this is part of the territory which... Yes, I do. And it, as know? I said, it won't dislodge me. Right, but I do want right. to say something that he misses. Okay. And that is this, is, is that uh, I'm only seven months in a ministry. Sure. And, uh, and, and head of a department. I'm making a department, putting it together. Right. And uh, the one thing about it is this. 
At the end of the 20th century, someone like myself, given my experience and all the things I believe in, to suggest that uh, one's sensitivity was a disadvantage right, is simply right, not on. Right, I see right, it as, in fact, right, actually a great right, asset. Right, uh, right. There are bureaucratic things, for example, that will occur from time to time, and in which one's own sensitivity is a powerful tool. Sure. I refuse sure, to. Uh, sure. I refuse to change uh, to satisfy anyone's agenda. Uh, I'm elected by the people. I, I'm nominated through the Dáil and invited by the Dáil to be a member of government, approved by the Dáil. Right, and I am right. the person I am, and that's that. Well, then that leads us into the question of the... Uh, you said you wanted to address Gerry Adams' accusation. Is it fair to say that you might be publicly or would be publicly perceived as broadly Republican? It is true to say that, that uh, these uh, debate I've had before is, is that uh, I remember very distinctly taking part in debates about people who suggested that 1916 was a waste of time and so forth. And I have said that I don't accept that okay. because this is to impose a set of motivations and r rational requirements on people who participated in what they felt to be was something very important and which led to the foundation of this state and which led to the existence of the institutions of which I am now a part. It's true as well that my father was involved in the War of Independence as were my uncles and my uncles were on one side in the Civil War and my father was on the Republican side. Right. Uh, I'm aware of that as well. Uh, the other thing I'm aware but of... But how deeply influential was that? Somebody said to me that your father had died destitute despite his commitment to republicanism and this left a question mark hanging over your own interpretation of republicanism. Oh, it's true that I... This is what is so. Uh, and uh, There's no question mark. What I, what I do what I do say, and, and, and it's one that I insist on that it be understood exactly, is that it is also known about my close uh, 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 friendship with Padre O'Donnell. Mm -hmm. That was right back to the time of the, the Land League was where I was introduced to him first, and later on we had many conversations together, and I was with him just before he died. Now, the point about it was is that I've always felt... Uh, that a republic that was defined simply in terms of territorial integrity betrayed the social and inherent uh, rights content of a republic. Right. I, 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 I write of this without hesitation as a betrayed republic. Right. I don't see, uh, to say that you are a republican uh, in, in that sense is best defined in the sense of the French Revolution. And I certainly am not influenced by those who try to say once again that the French Revolution itself is totally discounted by the terror that ensued. Uh, um, a kind of a, a neo-Burkean view. Uh, this is, uh, to my mind, uh, again, fiddling with history. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is, is that uh, I have no difficulty in using words that became unfashionable, like colonizer, colonized, colonization, because they are historical realities. Mm -hmm. I equally mm -hmm. say that I draw on what my whole life has been, the humanist agenda, which raises the question that the life is always more important than the territory. Mm -hmm. And I also know, in looking, and I visit Northern Ireland mm -hmm. quite often, is that what one has to live with is not simply two cultures or two traditions, but different remembered versions of history that we'll have to accommodate even if they are objectively in, in, in contradicting each other. Right. So that human agenda, and that agenda then that has to be not vaguely human, but delivered into a socially purposive set of policies, are what is important to me. And there was always 
a strain within republicanism that accepted that. It did not become the dominant strain. Right. And in fact, because it wasn't the dominant strain, after independence, those that had concentrated initially on the territorial constitutional argument took over the field. And then after that, again, others could vaguely define themselves as associated with this, and the word Republican began then to mean anything that one wanted to mean. Right. I see right. it in the finest, strongest sense of the citizens operating in terms of equality and freedom right. and outside of repression and in a socially just society. So if the human life is more important than the territories, does that mean you can't support the IRA? I do not support the IRA. And, uh, and uh, I, I think that uh, frankly, I do not accept that it is in a direct line from uh, in, in the independence struggle. Uh, and I neither do it, I think. I think that you cannot, uh, at this stage, with so many civ civilian casualties, so many people injured, so many people maimed, so many families scarred, say uh, that, 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 one, that this is the path, if you like, towards the resolution of uh, the problems on this island. I equally say right. that, uh, that, that uh, I have felt that the, the, the unionist veto, uh, and you remember within, from the unionist veto came an even uh, more cruel set of paramilitary right. initiatives, right. which were not condemned by those who uh, were, if you like, on the respectable side of unionism sufficiently. And standing behind all of that, it is hard to accept that even Labour governments in Britain ever seriously addressed the issues that were involved in a sustained way which might deliver us a solution. Right. What's your response to unionists saying that if the Labour, if the British Labour Party's plan is put into operation, it will definitely lead to war? Well, I think that people who predict war are the least useful people in the Northern Ireland debate. I mean, I look back and I think of all the people who suggested if you do this, you'll have civil war. If you do this, you'll have war. If you do this, you'll have war. Doomsday situations are simply uh, not helpful. The fact is, at the same time, one must realise that there are, if you create a vacuum right. uh, that isn't filled by political initiatives, and if you have, at the same time in existence, opposing groups of paramilitaries, you could then have a situation in which you would have an enormous, uh, amount of loss of life in a very short period of time. And it's irresponsible not to think of that. But this means, more importantly, that there must be a, a two-pronged approach towards the solution. You must continue trying to fill the political vacuum. But do you think then that the Irish Republican Army is not the Irish Republican Army? Their use of the word Republican is not my use. Right. And to Jerry Adams' uh, accusation that you weep for third world people yet ignore the suffering not 100, 200 miles from your own doorstep? I think that this is nonsense and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, uh, it's cheap too and I'm disappointed that he used it because uh, his other interviews have, have, have not gone down that road. Right. You know, you must remember that when I think back to, for example, my interest in Salvador or in human right. rights or other rights, whatever like that, and I remember going up and I wrote in Hot Press eight weeks to Belfast, made right. people from right. all sides of different opinion. Uh, you see... I've heard this before as well, when people are saying, but what about the poor at home? Yeah. If you look at it, the people who made the case for combat poverty were people like Frank Klusky and myself. If you look at it, all the issues, for example, for the rights of women, uh, I, I think I was the first right. politician in this country to make the case for civil divorce. I seconded the second family planning bill in the Senate as a young senator 
in 1974-75 to suggest that I am deliberately going abroad in search of these right. things. Right. It's simply because I see these issues as indivisible. But isn't it a, I did look back through your articles and there were less articles on the North than there were on Third World. Yes, uh, there concerns. were, yes. Right. And I have seen this, this, there was this pretty obnoxious image of you in the Phoenix which said, swanning about in a safari suit with a Sandinista leader in one hand and a press release defending the Well Woman Centre is after all not quite as subversive, inverted commas, as attacking imperialism in one's own country. So there seems to be this perception that you've shirked your responsibility in, in that area. But that's not a perception at all. That was just all right. a piece of vicious writing. All right. And in fact, actually, the author of it knows me well. Right. And uh, and uh, was deeply personally disappointed that his personal agenda in relation to something wasn't achieved. Which was what? I think I'll just leave it at that. All right. Okay, fair enough. So you you actually, you, you repudiate wholeheartedly any suggestion that you, you, you've transferred all your, your, your passions and empathies out into... I'm not that kind of person. Sure, I've sure. always been interested in a, holi- in a, in a, in a holistic view of things. But right. let me put it like this. I do wish that those who make these accusations were as committed as I am to the indivisibility of human rights. All right. And equally, if they were as capable, for example, of not running for cover on some of the most appalling and horrendous civilian deaths. Right, right. Do you have any hope? I mean, we have the Spring Mayhew collision over the I think that it is obscene, I would add to that. Sorry. I think it would be obscene when I have read at different times, including from the converts, that they want to apologise retrospectively for having killed the wrong person. All right. For goodness sake. Right. Oh, what an abuse of language is that? And what, what, what are their credentials then for, for questioning uh, uh, my work? Well, do you have any hope for the situation? I mean, we have Mayhew and Spring apparently on a collision course or having collided over the past seven days. Uh, I do know you have that... any hope or is there just darkness in your heart about the situation? Oh, I'm, I, I, I feel that it is appalling that we have not been able to make more progress and I also am upset regularly by the manner in which there is an indifference here in the south frequently to even news from Northern Ireland I've been in places when people turn away to pick up their drink again when the news comes to that segment of another loss of life and Equally, there's a sense of a kind of a weariness, of, an, of a kind of wonder, hoping that it would go away. I, I think that that is the, the thing we have to be very careful of, that right. a kind of a sufficient uh, detachment uh, from this tragedy that is going on in our island uh, would, would be ingrained even deeper. We are all concerned whether we well, like it or not. On the same question, if this is the biggest question facing Ireland as we close the century, uh, is there anyone who, who, any politicians or anyone who feels that being involved in the arts, culture and the Gale talk is a peripheral issue related to that or do they realise that you can work within that area too? Oh, very much so because if you think of it curiously, the kind of population that is in that area are very good people and uh, the relations between the Arts Council, which I have responsibility in the Northern Ireland Arts Council, are very good. Right. There are a number of joint projects. There are some very fine projects in the community hearts area right. uh, where women, for example, are from Belfast coming down south, the people from down south are going up. And if there is a vindication of an opinion I have had, I am convinced that, related to a point we had earlier in our interview, that the exclusion of the women's experience from our lives, north and south, and from politics in particular, has been part of our disability to come up with those 
ladder of sensitive, complicated strategies which can bind communities together. And it is not accidental that some of the best initiatives on building bridges have been, in fact, initiated by women. Right, right. You see that in the context of the North-South? The, the yes, I do. And if you look at community arts in particular, you see this everywhere. You also uh, know, in a way, that because if you take it arts, culture, gate, that in the Irish language is in the North as well, and you right. you, you look at it, and it would be my hope the television at Gaelgate will be, in fact, an all-island station. Right. If you look at other areas in culture and the arts, the, the, the lead people in it, the poets and the writers, the visual artists, the sculptors and so on, are already uh, committed to a set of transcendent values right. that are beyond, if you like, the immediate conflict, the immediate bitterness. And they are powerful agents of the new the discourse that's necessary. Okay, okay. To end the interview, I asked Michael D. Higgins a question that many of us could and should apply to ourselves and answer in a mercilessly honest manner. I asked if the person he was 25 years earlier could meet his older self at that point in 1993, shake his hand, look in his eyes, and not have to turn away, feeling a sense of betrayal. Oh, I do, yes. I think that that is... What I realise uh, is, is that uh, being 52 uh, is that the more you, t- the more you, t- the more you want to do, uh, you have to do it through respect for the complexity of things. Okay. But there are values that you hold on to, and they're, they're, they're core. And then the other side of it is, is that no change is without risk. And equally, no more than in writing, there's no good writing without strong feeling, be it pain or whatever. The fact of the matter is, is, is that uh, uh, I think that someone like myself in politics, who is this kind of complex person and who is refusing to deny their sensitivity, is an invitation of other people to other people to become involved in the political process in any way they want. Because right. it is too easy to right. sit back and say the kind of person politicians are and that, that basically the many of them come into it from their own lights trying. They have all good impulses at some stage or another. But the one thing that is very important is that the realm of the politics not be abandoned. And uh, sure. I'm hoping that, that, it, that uh, in a way uh, there will be people who think better than I, who write better than I, who feel stronger than I, who are more passionate than I, uh, will become uh, a sizable proportion of politics in the future. I think that's our best hope. Hi, Joe Jackson here again. I thank you for listening to this edition of the Joe Jackson Interviews podcast. And don't forget, if you want to access the full tapes for personal or professional use, contact me via my website, joejacksoninterviewer.com.